Well, the kids are now dismissed to go to Kids Praise, and um, it's kind of, um, I, I, sometimes I wish they could stay, because this morning I'm going to take you guys on an airplane ride, and I, you know, it's kind of a fun thing uh, for kids to be on an airplane ride and, and look out the window. Um, But I want you to imagine, those of us who are in this room or online, that you are in an airplane and you are taking in the scenery over the Midwest, okay? So what kind of things are you going to see as you look out the window? Probably some rivers and some major highways. I'm told that airline pilots often use those as marks to, you know, guide where they're going to go. Maybe you see, this is my favorite part, the layout of the farm fields and all the different shades of green and brown. It's just beautiful. Um, Or if we're flying further west, we'd see some mountain ranges. Um, But that's what we see from way up high. And this is what we're going to do today when we look at the books of first and second. Timothy. We're starting a new sermon series, and we're going to do some observation work. Um, And so as, and and this is just getting the big picture of first and second Timothy. Um, I want you to listen closely for parallels between first and second Timothy, and then our own issues today that we notice and experience in our culture and in our families. So, Why take the time to do observation or overview work um, when we're studying the Bible? Why is it important? Well, let me ask you this. Um, What is the meaning of this word? Okay, you got a definition in your head? How do you know that that's the meaning of this word? I mean, when I looked it up in the, you know, okay. Now, you can put it, what, in a sentence Okay, that's right. That might help you. So if we, there we go. There are millions of cells. Does that help you with your, does that agree with the definition you have in your head? Is that sentence helpful for you? Well, sometimes we might even need to look at a dictionary to figure out the definition of a word. And so um, we're going to go ahead and do that. Oh, there's four. There are four different definitions for the word cell, okay? And so now how do we know which definition we mean or need in our particular context? And so then one more slide here. Well, of course, we need to put them in a sentence. We need to give them give a context, and then we can know um, that it's the body composed of millions of cells, or the prisoners are kept in separate cells, a whole different thing, terrorist cells all over the world, or call me on my cell phone. So um, when we have a word, it's important for us not only to put it in a sentence, but a lot of times even just put it in a paragraph, or when we're studying scripture, we put it in a book. And that helps us understand what we're reading. What are the top three rules of real estate? Location, location, location. Well, when we're studying the word of God, the top three rules are context, context, context. And we always want to make sure that we are understanding what we're reading and what the original author of what we're reading intended for his original hearers to understand. So that finally, at the end of the day, we can know how to take the principles that um, are being taught and apply them to our life correctly. So, 
Um, as we look at um, doing observation work on First and Second Timothy, we'll try to make this interesting. Uh, we want to answer five key, key questions from journalism. Do you remember what they are? Who, what, where, when, why? And then if you might want to throw in the H, it's how. There we go. Well, who are we looking at when we open the books of First and Second Timothy? Who are our major players? And we find out First Timothy chapter one, verse one, right away. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. All right, we, we know that the author is Paul. And in order for us, though, to figure out a little bit more about who Paul is, because reading First and Second Timothy, we get some window into his life, but sometimes we have to cross-reference. And so um, when you read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, but all the other books that Paul wrote, we get a much broader picture of who Paul is. Now, Paul was formerly a zealous Jewish Pharisee. And he had traveled great distance to persecute Jewish people who had become Christians. And he was arresting them and having them beaten and thrown in jail. And he, his dramatic conversion while on a rampage to the city of Damascus ended in his commissioning by God to be an apostle. Imagine, he did a 180. Um, he's an apostle. And so the word apostle, actually, in Greek, it's apostolos. And it means a delegate, a messenger, or one sent forth with orders. So Paul was commissioned directly by Jesus Christ as the messenger to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are those people in the world who were not Jewish. So either you were Jewish or you were a Gentile. And those outside of the hope of God, therefore. His role was to preach the gospel or the good news to them and include the Gentiles in the family of God. Well, asking a Jew to include, with a Jewish background, the Gentiles in the family of God is like asking a KU Jayhawk to uh, recruit for K-State. It's just not going to happen. So you know God would have to be in it for it to actually happen and for it to be true. Well, verse uh, 2 in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy gives us the next player on the scene. And it says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. This is really affectionate language for men. I mean, this is a special relationship. It's like more than a bromance. Um, it's a father-son bonding. Um, as we read around in the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts actually records three missionary journeys that Paul went on. And on his missionary journeys, he would share the gospel and plant churches. And during his second missionary journey, he, he doubles back to the churches that he'd planted in Lystra and Derby. And here the brethren introduce him to Timothy because they are so impressed with Timothy's maturity in the faith. And Paul just describes Timothy this way in, in uh, his first letter to him. I'm reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith a faith that dwells first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. 
Since childhood, you have known the scriptures, which enable you to be uh, wise and lead to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So we know that Timothy's been a believer since he was a young child. And Paul takes Timothy, who in, in my words, he's a young old soul, and he takes him under his wing and on his missionary journey, and he's further training him in the word of God, and he's discipling him. It's, the, it's life on life. And Timothy's maturity and gifts of preaching and teaching eventually lead the Ephesians um, and Paul to lay hands on him and to commission his ministry in the city of Ephesus as a leader in the Ephesian church. Now, Paul is confident that in his absence, Timothy is equipped to handle this leadership. And this first letter to Timothy comes as part of Paul's coaching to this younger mentor in the faith. And so he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, Timothy, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid hands on you. Now, at the risk of of jumping ahead to application, we need to pause and just ask a um, a few questions here. Who is your Paul? Who poured into you and shared Jesus with you? Was it your grandmother? Is her name Lois? Was it a youth pastor? Or maybe a next door neighbor? Who allowed their life to overlap with yours in such a way that the baton of faith was passed from them to you? And and if you've known Jesus for a long time, let me ask, who is your Timothy? Who's the next generation that you call my true child in the faith? How are you intentionally cultivating opportunities for your life and a younger person's life to overlap so that you are able to encourage them in their walk with Jesus? And if this doesn't describe you yet, uh, let me ask you, have you prayed about your next Timothy? Have you prayed about who that might be? Besides my parents, my first Paul of many, and I've had many people pour into my life over the years, my first Paul was the woman on the right, Fran Anderson. She was our Christian formation director in my church when I was growing up, and she taught me about God and Jesus and the Bible and just how to love them all. And she modeled for me what it meant to be a humble woman in ministry. Now, the other players, and, and again, we're in our airplane, the other players in First and Second Timothy on our who's who's list are the folks of the Ephesian church. In First Timothy, Paul addresses a, a wide variety of people, actually, who are in the church at Ephesus, and they include Jews, Greeks, men, women, widows, slaves, masters, false teachers, and gullible women. This eclectic group of people had only their saving faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit in common. That's it. 
And to spin Harper Lee's famous quotation to, in, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, she said, you can choose your friends, but in the family of God, you show can't choose your family. So again, as we're doing an observation work and we're just staying on the, you know, looking at the lay of the land, we want to ask these, these questions of First and Second Timothy. What has happened? And what are the consequences of what has happened? Remember, in observation, it's that airplane view. And then John is going to help us unpack our luggage in the next several weeks as we walk through these books. So as we look at First uh, and Second Timothy, first of all, we notice, you know, what are they? They are letters. Letters written to a specific group of people to address a specific set of issues that are happening in the church in Ephesus, which Timothy was commissioned to correct. But for some reason, Timothy has cold feet. Several times throughout the letters, Paul has to urge Timothy, Timothy, my son, fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tale. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. And what you have heard from me, Timothy, keep as a pattern of good, sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus Guard the good deposit which has been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So what's going on that Paul needs to urge Timothy in this way? Well, if we look at uh, these books, the Ephesian church, whom they're written uh, also to, there's a dirty laundry list of issues that they are trying to plow their way through. And uh, as I read through this list, I just want to ask you, do you see these same types of struggles in the church today? The first one is biblical illiteracy. These folks, they just, they don't know their scriptures A Barna study indicates that only 33% of people read their Bibles at least once a week. Once a week. Would we ever only eat once a week? Then how can we expect to remain spiritually alive if we only read the word once a week? It's an interesting thought. Another problem that was going on in the church, and this is the biggie, is false teaching. And there's also manipulation of people, illicit sexual misconduct, um, ministry for monetary gain. Timothy's got to wrestle this out of all the folks there. You know, I googled false teaching in the Christian church today, and these six things popped up as the top things that the church today is struggling with Universalism, Um, it's the idea that all people will be saved and that all religions lead to God. Prosperity gospel, Um, this is preached from our churches and it says God's primary concern is for believers to be healthy and wealthy. That's our goal in life. The new age movement, man is divine and therefore he creates his own reality. Or legalism, I can obtain salvation by good works alone. 
Then there's the hyper-grace movement, which is license and freedom from God's standards. I can live any way I want, and I will still get to the heaven that I envision. And then this last one is uh, come on the scene probably in the, with us, our next generation, and that is called the emerging church, which glorifies emotions and tolerance over absolute truth. And there's uh, honesty and confession happening in the churches. People are pouring their hearts about the things that, that they're, they're broken with, but then there's no repentance that comes. And without repentance, Christ says you cannot be saved. Um, and also the emerging church tries to take, make the gospel palatable to the culture. And in doing so, it guts it. It cuts it off at the knees. Well, the laundry list goes on. I don't know if you have ever been in context where these things are happening, but here we go at the Ephesian church where Paul and Timothy have been. Low standards or no standards for leaders. Um, there's division in the church. Imagine that over issues that have to do with the government, worship, money. And if the issues at church don't get you, then there's the personal issues that people are wandering around in, like selfishness or gossip or greed. The godless cultural and pluralistic religion that is all permeated throughout Ephesus is sneaking and finding its way into the church. And therefore, uh, there is a low view of the church by those who are on the outside looking in. And it really begs the question for us today, I think, in order to avoid these things happening to us, how, do I, how well do I know my Bible? Am I, have I equipped myself to recognize false teaching if it came into my church? Do I know God's word well enough to pass it on? To others, which is my responsibility as a believer. Our next journalism question as we're flying over uh, the books in Timothy is where? Where is all this taking place? And this will give us a big clue as to why we have such a long laundry list of what's going wrong here at the church. Um, and if we look at where Timothy's church is located, uh, first of all, in Ephesus, let's look at that. Ephesus is boasting a large seaport. It's up on the map. It's kind of in the, in the center there. And it was a large multi-ethnic center of trade, commerce, ideas, entertainment, and culture. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world. So it was very large by standards in their day. And here, um, the Roman gods and the Greek gods, because you recall the Romans conquered the Greeks, those gods, all their pantheon of gods, shook hands and they're all friends. And so there's a whole complex of places that you can worship. Um, and the occult, the worship of the devil, was very strong in Ephesus as well. So you've got all of this happening in the culture around this little church. When we look at Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 19, it describes the beginning of this church in Ephesus. This is uh, planted on Paul's first missionary journey in about 54 AD. And they came to Ephesus. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
And when the Jews asked Paul to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Well, he came back to this little fledgling church on his second missionary journey. The believing Jews had started a church, and they began to attract actually a mostly Gentile crowd. And this is what Acts continues to say about that uh, Gentile crowd. It says, Gentile believers openly confessed their evil deeds. And there were enough sorcerers among them to denounce and burn 50,000 days worth of scrolls about the magic arts. 50,000 wages worth of scrolls about the magic arts. It was huge, absolutely huge. And then on his third missionary journey, Paul spends between two and three years at the Ephesian church. And he's weeding out all of the false doctrine and the pagan practices that have been springing up in the church. And his Gentile converts had to be taught the scriptures from scratch because they had not been raised with the Old Testament teachings like the Jewish Christians had. And so they had no knowledge of the God of the Jews of Israel and had to be, again, taught from scratch. It takes a long time um, to share all of that with someone. And so you can imagine the love um, that they had for one another and the love that Paul and Timothy had for this congregation to be so patient with them. To understand First and Second Timothy, um, we also need to understand one more thing about Ephesus, and that was that it was the sacred home of Artemis, the Greek goddess of fertility. And her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's significant to the culture and the social norms of Ephesus that Artemis was a goddess. She's not a god, she's a goddess. She's, and there was a decidedly feminist hue to the Ephesian uh, mentality, to the personality of the city, if I can say it that way. And this heavy influence of Artemis, the goddess-inspired feminism, threatened the stability of marriages and family. So that's what was going on. Paul has a lot to say about women in his letters to Timothy as a result of this feminism that was in, um, in the churches there. Not like ours today, but, um, and John's going to unpack some of that coming up. Um, but Paul writes to Timothy as a result, and he includes the, these famous verses. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach. So we're going to unpack these verses in light of their context in coming weeks. A listener wrote into the radio preacher J. Vernon McGee in response to Paul's instructions to Timothy in these letters about women's appearance and modesty. And the listener wanted to know, is it okay for women to wear makeup? To which the famous preacher drawled, if a barn needs painting, you paint it. Well, the reach of Artemis in terms of her areas of supposed power and influence, along with that overarching belief in many gods, this provided a foundation 
for the pluralism in Ephesus and all of the Greco-Roman society in that day. And so, to, and does this sound familiar to you? Because this is what was happening there as a result. To claim that your God or your particular religion was the only one or the only correct one and that yours nullified all of the other religions, it was almost treasonous to say that out loud in Ephesus. I wonder what advice... Paul had for Timothy about surviving in a culture where false teaching and relativism was so widely accepted. I wonder how Timothy, and a young per, as a young person, could stay faithful in such an environment. And is there someone in your life where you're concerned about the culture influencing them more than their faith in Christ? Is your heart concerned for someone? Well, our next uh, stop as we're flying over is the word when. When did all these things happen? Um, when was, were these letters written? And so after Paul's third missionary journey is over, and it's about 64 AD now, the elders of the Ephesian church and Paul, they lay hands on Timothy and they appoint him to be in charge when Paul leaves for Macedonia. Now from Macedonia then, Paul writes the letter of 1 Timothy. And then Paul goes on to Crete, and it's from Rome, where Paul is, we learn, incarcerated yet again, that Paul pens 2 Timothy a year or so later from the first letter. And he says this in 2 Timothy from jail. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, Timothy, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Paul, who knows Timothy so well, he encourages him to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands and guard the good deposit which was entrusted to you. Timothy was aware that Paul was in chains for the gospel. Can you imagine how Timothy might be intimidated and how he might need some encouragement as the leader of the church in Ephesus to not shrink back from his responsibility? We hear the urgency at the end of 2 Timothy in Paul's voice. Um, and he pleads with Timothy to come to him before winter and to bring the coat and the scrolls. I wonder what it was like for Paul to wait in his prison cell, wondering if he would see his beloved child in the faith before he left this earth. I mean, if, if you knew that you might not be long for this world, what might you want to say to those that you love? Would they perhaps be the most important words that you could ever utter? So in summary, as we reflect on these books, um, I just want to sum it up and ask, why was Timothy written? Why is it important for the big picture? Why is it important for us today and for us as readers of these letters to even care about what happened? 
Well, the first reason I see in these books is that by writing this open letter, Paul is reminding the church of the scope of Timothy's authority in their midst. And Timothy was to safeguard the true gospel and keep it central in all matters. Paul says, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and the foundation of truth. Remember, we've got all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds who make up this Ephesian church and their pagan religious background made them susceptible to false teachers. They need a good, solid, gospel-preaching leader, and Timothy could do it. You know, you and I are here today because someone else was faithful to preach the true gospel to us. Secondly, as we look at 2 Timothy and the reason that Paul writes this letter to him, uh, we see Paul's end is near in Nero's Roman prison and that the church is going to need a strong leader to take Paul's place in the long run. Paul urges Timothy to continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because you know those things from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is passing the baton to Timothy. When you think about church history and you think about this moment in church history, the original apostles and the eyewitnesses of Jesus were starting to pass on to the next world. And faithful biblical leadership was going to be needed to see that the church endured. And the things you have heard me say, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to a reliable people who in turn will teach others. And then Paul says these words to Timothy near the end of his letter. He says, in the presence of God. And by the way, he's, he is, um, these are his last words to Timothy. And so we know they're important. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And here's the warning. For there will come a time when men will not put up with sound doctrine. If someone asked you what the gospel was, could you share its basics? Do you know what it is, what it includes? It's what saves us. As a follower of Jesus, we are required to know what the gospel is. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he lays out the content of the gospel message. He says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. These, then, are the essential elements of the gospel. These are basic ingredients for our gospel cake. (laughs) First of all, it's the sin of all people. We are all sinners. There is no one who is perfect. Second, that the death of Christ on the cross paid for those sins. Thirdly, that the resurrection of Christ to provide everlasting life for those who would follow him is the good news. We will live forever with him if we choose to give our lives to him and follow him. And that this is an offer of a free gift. Salvation is ours as a gift from God, but we must receive that good news of the gospel. We must receive Christ's death on the cross on our behalf in order for it to be active in our lives. This is the good news that Paul entrusted to Timothy and which Jesus himself entrusted to us as a church. Many of you know that my dad died this past summer. And we three kids all shared at his funeral. I guess it's an occupational hazard for being in ministry. And as I I prepared uh, for what I was going to say, I was struck with how much influence my father has had on my faith and my journey into ministry. My mom, too. And even in my dad's dementia in the last months of his life, he would, he would belly up to the iPad because his hearing was so poor, and he would want to hear his daughter just preach the word. Preach the word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to do that and for entrusting me Um, to rightly divide the word of God from this pulpit. It is something I take very seriously. Our Crescendo leadership team uh, most recently met a couple of times actually this past month. And we spent time in prayer sharing. Um, We wanted to discern the direction for the Crescendo ministry, which is for our 55 plus group here at the church. And as we prayed and discerned, the Holy Spirit shared with us, um, we recognize that God is calling our generation to reach the next generation for Christ. And for that to happen, we need to be present with them in their everyday context, life on life, as Paul and Timothy were, sharing and carrying them into the kingdom And so I would just challenge us today because I'm so excited to see where this takes us. Um, But for us to be able to um, help in any way that we can to see folks come to that saving good news of Jesus. Well, thank you for riding on the airplane with me this morning. Um, And I want to leave us with just these last few questions to ponder, and I just pray that they roll around in your head this week, that the Holy Spirit will bring them to the surface and 
um, show you perhaps uh, something in your life that he wants you to look at. And the first one is, who is your Paul? Who do you give thanks to God for? Because they are helping you know Jesus better because they are investing in you. Or maybe the question for you is, who is your Timothy? Who is God asking you to intentionally invest time, energy, and love into so that they can be obedient to Jesus' command to make disciples? Do I know my Bible well? How can I stay faithful in today's culture? Do I know how to share the gospel? And then the last one, when will I share what I know with those that I love? Would you pray with me, please? Oh God, you are a good God. And you have provided a way for us to spend eternity with you. Lord, we know that we um, are sinners in need of a savior. And many of us in this room, God, have committed our lives to you. We've, Lord Jesus, we have asked you to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for your saving death on the cross for us. And Lord Jesus, um, we just ask that uh, you would reveal yourself to anyone in this room who does not know you that they might truly walk in love with you and know what it means to walk in freedom from sin and to know what it means to have that personal relationship with you on a daily basis. And so, God, again this morning, Lord Jesus, we just give you our lives, we receive your spirit, and we again renew our commitment to walk with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.